0: Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code LAWPOD30 for $30 off your first week. I refuse to testify on the grounds that my organs will be chopped up into a patty.
1: Ah, the 67th Amendment.
2: Move for a bad court thingy. You mean a mistrial? Yeah, that's why you're the judge and I'm the law talking guy.
1: Can you see Captain Blackadder anywhere in this courtroom? That's him! That's him! <laughs> no more questions, Keep trying. Silence, or you'll be held.
0: Contempt of this court. I have nothing but contempt for this court.
1: Welcome to Opening Arguments, the podcast that pairs an inquisitive interviewer with a real-life lawyer. This podcast is sponsored by the law offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC, for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast.
0: Hello and welcome to Opening Arguments. This is episode number 95. I'm your host, Thomas Smith Esquire. That over there is your other host, Andrew Torres, not Esquire. Sorry, I'm the Esquire today. How are you doing, Andrew?
2: That's fair. I, <laughs> other than being slightly hurt by being demoted, I'm great. <laughs>
0: yes, you How have lost you? <laughs> a meaningless uh, suffix. <laughs> it's my meaningless <laughs> suffix today. I'm doing great. I'm excited. we got a lot of cool stuff today. Oh, this is our sort of crossover episode, from Serious Inquiries Only, where we started discussing the 94 crime bill yesterday, assuming people are listening to this on time. So if you haven't heard that, maybe check that out. I mean, I'm sure you can listen to them independently, but you know, get the full package. And we're going to continue that discussion. Andrew is going to give us some real history on the uh, inclusions and, and how the 94 crime bill shaped up. I'm really interested to hear that. But before we get to that, we've got to get to our listener question today. He who questions
2: training only trains himself at asking questions.
0: What? And today's listener question is from No Illusions. I've heard of that guy over on Scathing Atheists and God-Awful Movies. Love having Noah as a listener. He asked really good questions. He asked this time, is there a legal reason why traffic fines, et cetera, aren't based on income level? The fine I'd pay for going 25 miles per hour over the speed limit is the same fine a person with half my income would pay. This strikes me as terribly regressive, and since we report our income to the state and federal governments anyway, doesn't strike me as a crazy difficult thing to fix, end quote. Yes, I have said this exact thing. I totally agree. I think my solution, and I don't, was this on this show? I I I think it was on this show, or maybe it was some other time we've talked to Andrew, but I think this is a possible solution, but another solution would be all traffic fines should be... Uh, and I'm adding to Noah's question. Sorry, Noah, but I want to <laughs> I want to add to it. I think they should be community service. I think they should be some sort of community service because that also solves the problem of police just you know setting up little uh, traps to try to get fees from people and then. Fund their police departments, and, and which is a, a whole thing that I hate. So I think that would solve both problems because the rich guy driving through is probably going to be even more pissed to have to do an hour of community service than than somebody who's unemployed or something. So that is my idea for it. What do you think about both of those ideas?
2: I love the uh, the the community service idea for an awful lot of reasons. Not not the least of which is you were right that it sort of completely reverses. The usual equities of the situation. Um, I wanted to tackle this question because for a whole bunch of reasons, I mean, obviously Noah is a friend of ours, but I, I thought that there were a, a bunch of really neat assumptions that are kind of buried in within this question uh, that are all worth talking about, right? So the first is the fiscal reality of where we stand on the political landscape right now, where Because of Overton window, because of the way in which our politics has been conducted, the default position of the Republican Party, which controls all three branches of governments, is that – you cannot is that the only position you can have with respect to taxes is cutting or repealing them. <laughs> uh, yeah and the Democratic position has been, yeah, yeah, we we kind of agree. Oh eh, nobody likes taxes, but uh occasionally we want to tax occasionally uh, you want to build a road or something that,
0: or have healthcare. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. And to me, I, I'm not really sure how we got here uh because any sort of accurate model of The burden that citizens pay for government services tracked over time can show what the result of that policy is, which is to say that we have taken things that used to be funded by taxes and now because – Nobody can pass taxes even at the state level. Mm -hmm. Those things tend to get pulled offline item and are then funded by user fees, licensing requirements that are unbelievably regressive, right? And so if you look at like state college tuition costs (laughs) and track that over time, the average citizen's tax burden – has not been reduced in any way <laughs> proportionate with the average citizen's cost in which they bear to, you know, send a kid to a public college or university. You look at, think about the last time you renewed your driver's license, had your emissions tested. Well, I was going to
0: say vehicle registration, right? Isn't there a bunch of fees on there that we've added in yeah. to try to, yeah. So, so you're and- saying that's been done because politically no one, you, everyone is read my lips, no new taxes. And that that's exactly has to be what it is. So so people are finding ways that the government or whoever, I I don't know who's doing it, but finding ways to insert fees into different things.
2: Right. And so when it becomes you are paying for X service, then it's really, really hard to implement the principle of progressivity. Right. Like because the other side of the argument, the other side of of the application is if you say we charge this surcharge on your emissions, for example, and that is then used to pay for repaving the roads, right? A rich person's car does the same about the same amount of damage as a poor person's car to the road, yeah. right? Like it, it's not like there's a disproportionate impact on the thing that you're doing. And so it makes it harder to to argue, right? Like if you had a means tested <laughs> method for renewing your driver's license, <laughs> right? You could do it in a progressive way, but that would be uh, it would look kind of silly, right? And it would and it would cause sort of more outrage of oh wait, like You know, I see my means tested driver's license just came in and, oh, look, I happen to be on the side that it's going to cost me twice as much as, you know, it's going to cost somebody else. So, you know, it's 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 difficult to implement those sort of things when you've decoupled the general principle, which is the sort of social contract. Like we all live in this country. We all benefit from the economies of scale and the shared goods. Right. Like the like the reason why, you know, people start jobs in, uh, you know, start companies and and create jobs in the United States, it has to do with a, a large number of intangible factors, right? Like it has to do with our economic and educational infrastructure. And right? it has to do with the fact that we are a, by and large, a, a well-educated country, that we have a good network of electricity and internet. And yeah, you know, all of those things that we benefit from collectively, but can't, parse out on an individual basis are things that, that contribute to that environment. And and it used to be the idea was, and okay, and so then we should pay for government. And by the way, how should we pay for government? The principle should be progressive because at the lower end, and, and, and by progressive, we mean you pay a higher rate, the higher your income is, right? So, you know, in other words, uh, when we say that taxes are progressive, we mean that the percentage of your income that you pay increases as your household income increases something that is not progressive uh, would be a flat tax right that taxes everybody at the same percentage and something that is highly regressive is something that taxes everybody at the same amount you know that's so in other words the percentage is actually decreasing the more income you have The fact that we've kind of lost that general principle is, I think, you know, one of sort of the real kind of breakdowns in in our social contract over the past uh, 30 years. And and it just has to do with the the read my lips, no new taxes, like toxic environment of if you raise taxes, that means you will lose as a politician. Where, Where the clear test should be, what's the burden to the average person? Right. And we know the lower your income level is the more of your income has to go towards fixed expenses. Yeah. Right. Because those like, yeah, you can't just say like, uh, you know, the demand for water is inelastic, right? Like yeah, you, you are going to, you know, have to pay for basic necessities. You can trim them as much as you can, but at some level you, you can't cut them any further. And, um, And so, yeah.
0: So, is there to go back to the question? Is there any constitutional reason that we couldn't do either of our
2: solutions? No, we we absolutely could do could do both of those solutions. Um, It would because you know this dovetails in with uh, the topic we've you know continued to talk about the when you were talking about uh, making distinctions on the basis of. Economic status. There, we are talking about the distinctions that would require uh, the rational basis test in order to to pass. And you would say, okay, yeah, the rational basis here is we want the people who are most able to afford paying for the things that society requires to pay for them and we want people who are at least able to afford to have the best opportunity to to keep as much of their income as as they earn in order to help grow and contribute to the economy in the future. So th- that would certainly pass the rational basis test. It it, it is rational in my view. Uh, yeah. And so there, there's no bar to it. There is of course, you know, the obvious sort of political bar to it.
0: Yeah, that's true. Well, we have to get on that. No, let's team up. Let's let's start a campaign because I'm tired of this. I agree. I agree. I I really, I really
2: love your idea. Like, and that is, it's interesting, you know, most community groups do something like that, right? Like, you know, if, if your child, you'll, you'll learn this. If your child plays community sports, most of those organizations, you know, you have the fee that covers the uniforms and being a part of the team and then they'll say, Oh, and by the way, everybody is expected to either, you know, work the snack bar right. for an hour, or you know, write us an extra check for twenty-five bucks or something. And and you know, and and you get to make that yeah. decision. You know, as a as a parent, and it it uh, I've I've always liked that model.
0: So. Yeah. All right. Well, let's make it happen, Andrew. Let's get on that. Well, I agree. Patreon goal? No, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can also start accepting uh, community service instead of Patreon. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, time for a little bit of a little podcast uh, crossover going on. A little podcast on podcast love happening here. So we <laughs> talked about the crime bill on my show a little bit, uh, but you wanted to cover some different areas. They're definitely unique podcasts, so they won't there won't be a lot of overlap. I don't think, right?
2: No. So I wanted to talk about the crime bill of 1994 on your podcast. And so yeah, everybody should go listen to episode 67 of serious inquiries only on that show. I talk about the claim that the omnibus crime bill of 1994 was uh, the result of neoliberalism, and that the uh, community-oriented policing elements in that bill were tantamount to inviting occupiers into our nation's inner cities, and I show that that uh, I think is a uh, is a political slander against uh, Hillary Clinton that uh, that does not withstand st- serious scrutiny. I kind of like to talk. This is a really fascinating bill, so I'd kind of like to talk about how we got this bill, and what's in it on this show. Wow. Okay. So, this story begins like so many of my stories in the late 1980s. Okay? <laughs> it is, it, hair metal is huge. Peak Andrew Guns Torres. and Roses is on their world tour.
0: I picture you in an arcade somewhere listening to some some hair metal with a with a fantastic '80s hairdo,
2: I do. I have hair at my shoulders at this, oh, this point, is great. And I am playing 1943 <laughs> in an arcade while listening to a Slayer. <laughs> so, but the other thing that happened in 1988 was the Democrats fielded a presidential candidate named Michael Dukakis, who was the governor of Massachusetts. Who, prior to that race, was thought of as kind of a centrist technocrat. He was running on what he called the Massachusetts Miracle, which was uh, revitalizing the economy in Massachusetts. And so the idea was that Democrats were going to run this guy who, you know, gave them the opportunity to win back the White House after eight long years of uh, Ronald Reagan. George uh, H.W. Bush was perceived as an incredibly weak candidate. And despite all that, Dukakis got crushed. He lost 40 states and was widely perceived to have thrown away a very winnable election Mm. for the Democrats. And what was, there were a great many sort of tactical missteps that, that uh, the Dukakis campaign made. Uh, But what was perceived as the biggest one was during the first debate uh, CNN's Bernard Shaw asked Michael Dukakis a question of which the predicate was, uh, Mr. Dukakis, if your wife Kitty were raped and murdered, would you not want to see the death penalty for her attacker? And Dukakis gave what is widely considered to be the worst answer in any debate ever, and that includes wow. – well. Dan Quayle ruminating I was on the say, spelling We had some of debates potato, in 2016. Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. We yeah. might have to add to that yeah. list. Well, I was going to say yeah.
2: up until prior to 2016, and I know. By the way, don't send me hate mail. I know the Dan Quayle potato thing was at a school. That's a joke. That's not an actual description. Um, uh, yeah, I would say everything Donald Trump has ever said is worse than yeah. that. But look, like, objectively speaking, it was a terrible response. Like, he he went into a, like, well, no, I don't, Bernard. As you know, I've always been against the death penalty. I don't think that it reduces. Rec- like, it, it was just it was a terrible answer when there was a very obvious answer in front of him, which was. Yeah, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Like uh, uh number 1, I'm, I'm 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 annoyed uh and angry that you would ask a question yeah. like yeah. that. And frankly, I think it's beneath you to to do that here on the stage. Every single person feels that sense of anger when when something happens to their loved ones. There's a difference between codifying anger as a matter of public policy you know, what I would think about. And the fact that we would feel that anger is precisely, you know, and that's how you, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of pivot into that answer. So wait, what did he actually Um, say? What he said was, he answered the question about the death penalty. So his answer was, well, no, I don't, Bernard. I've always opposed the death penalty because I don't think that it is an effective uh, means of deterring future crimes. And I don't think that it is. It was just a robotic kind of policy answer about the death penalty. And it, and it, it was, you kind of had to, to be and again, I was watching. I was a. I licked envelopes for the Dukakis campaign in 1988. I was with I was the hair way and with the slayer. I was way too young to vote. I was alive, but I was way too young to vote. Uh, and, but nevertheless, uh, uh, I was I was politically active. Define I wanted way Dukakis too to young. Be to, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> And I was watching this debate live with my parents. And, you know, even as a child and Dukakis supporter, I was like, well, that's bad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I didn't realize quite how bad it was. So how bad was it? Uh, And look, Dukakis also posed, you know, uh, wearing an oversized helmet in a tank. Like, there were a a number of bad things that he did. But one of the things that was thought of as contributing to his 40-state landslide loss to a a lackluster candidate was – the fact that he was opposed to the death penalty. And so in 1992, when Bill uh, Clinton was running and was running with the support of- He personally of killed the, somebody
0: just to make sure. Di- almost. Almost, yeah. No, um, I know.
2: The, the Democratic Leadership uh, Council, there was a- murderer in the state of Arkansas who had serious mental issues, right? His name was Ricky Ray Rector and on January 24th, 1992, so during the democratic during the democratic primaries, mind you, Bill Clinton left who who was governor of Arkansas at the time, mm-hmm. uh, left the campaign trail, went back to Arkansas to personally preside over the execution of Ricky Ray Rector. And I wanna tell you that the most I don't know if you remember Rector, if you've heard the stories. I've, I've or not. heard a little bit about um, it, but the most common story about him is that he asked oh, right. for a final meal of steak fried chicken, cherry Kool-Aid and pecan pie. And then
0: wanted to save the whole dinner or something like that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And said, yeah, well, I want you to save my dinner, my my dessert for tomorrow.
0: Yeah. Didn't understand what was going on.
2: And then Rector was executed. Bill Clinton won the election, uh, won the Democratic nomination and won the election, unseated incumbent president George H.W. Bush. And so the idea was that the, the DLC strategy here was to take the politically toxic issue of the death penalty off the table. And when I say politically toxic, the death penalty, support for the death penalty uh, throughout the 1980s was high. Uh, during the Dukakis election, it was in the low to mid-70s, which is awfully popular. By 1994, support for the death penalty peaked at 80%. Mm. Okay? It Okay, is really, really difficult to find a political issue upon which – Eighty percent of the country agrees. Yeah. And so the DLC looking at the Democrats having been crushed in a winnable election, having been destroyed in 1984 by the Reagan Mondale, uh, having been crushed in 1980, having narrowly won in 1976, despite Richard Nixon having been crushed in 1972. Right. Like that. That's a pretty bad string of defeats. Yeah. And uh, and the DLC said uh, the only way for us to elect a Democrat is for us to divorce the Democratic Party from these toxic political issues upon which the overwhelming majority of the country uh, feels the other way. And uh, and Bill Clinton picked the death penalty uh, to 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 do that. That sets the stage for this omnibus crime bill of of 1994, uh, because this is one of the truly last omnibus pieces of legislation that was designed to amalgamate together a whole bunch of everybody gets something so therefore we're all going to vote for this bill but but the bill expanded the federal death penalty and added 50 new crimes for which there would be a federal death penalty involved it it, it greatly contributed uh, it continued uh, i i should i should say the reagan administration's policy of federalizing state crimes so in other words you know we've talked about how by and large murder is a state crime yeah right like it, it is you know if i if i kill you in california the state of california has an interest in charging me with the common law of murder well to get you into federal court you have to start putting additional conditions on things and say oh did i transport a firearm across Uh, state lines to get to california and then use the firearm in the commission of that crime so is the goal
0: to get it in federal court so that then the death penalty will apply is that what that is
2: exactly okay. exactly right because a number of states flatly prohibit the death penalty so in no way do i want to defend the federalization of of the death penalty that is in the uh, the omnibus crime bill of 1994 uh, but i do want to give the political context in which it it found its way into there which was not in any way through what we would consider contemporary clintonian or obama Mm. neoliberalism right which is that's the accusation we
0: talked about on my show which is you know this is what happens when you get liberals are actually just as bad in a lot of ways as conservatives because they do these things that uh they're like they're like too centrist and they end up just caving into right-wing uh solutions to crime right right This policy was, uh, as we talked
2: about on SIO, an explicit policy of triangulation was we want to take the death penalty off the table as a political issue. So we're going to have our crime bill is going to have some liberal stuff in it that I'm going to talk about in a minute. uh, But it's also going to be a pro death penalty bill. It's going to expand the death penalty. So that Democrats can go back and win elections. And when they get the Bernard Shaw question, they can say, no, not only am I pro death penalty, but I expanded it. Yeah. Uh, Bill Clinton said, no, I took time off the campaign trail to go execute a mentally ill person. Right. Like it was just, you know, uh, that uh, it was not just uh, me, too. But uh, in fact, you know, we are as aggressive in being pro death penalty as uh, as as anyone else. So interestingly, one of the things that I thought. Might be the result because I am no fan of triangulation. I yeah. was a reluctant. I voted by the time uh, Maryland is a late primary in 1992. Uh, it was the first election in which I could vote. Uh, I voted in that primary and I voted for Paul Songus over Bill Clinton in 1992, even Never though it was pretty clear. <laughs> bil- yeah, yeah. <laughs> a congressman from Massachusetts who had no chance of winning. But nevertheless, right, I was not eager to go out and vote for Bill Clinton because I I was not a fan of the move to the center triangulation kind of strategy and one of the things that i thought might be a consequence of the democratic party sort of abandoning the fight on the death penalty is the overton window you know shifting of okay well if neither political party is telling us is presenting the arguments against the death penalty then that's just going to become an acceptable part of the landscape in actuality i'm going to link this on the show Mm. notes since 1994, when the death penalty hit its public approval rating, it was 80 to 16 is yeah, how that's that broke crazy. down. And look, like I agree that's pretty toxic. Support for the death penalty has been on a consistent and uniform decline. Today, support for the death penalty is as low as it has been since 1976. Wow. It is at 60 percent. Huh, still uh, it in the majority. It is now 60 to 37. And look, if an issue is 60-40, that, you know, in my view, uh, y- you know, yeah, like that's not, you don't run ads saying <laughs> yeah, you- <laughs> I, I am only opposed by 60 percent of the populace. But you can have an opinion that 60 percent disagrees with still Win elections, yeah. right? You can say, "Yeah, look, I agree. I know, I know, other people feel differently, uh, but I have serious reservations about the death penalty because uh, we know that innocent people have been executed, and in my view, uh, until we fix the." Racial and economic disparities in how the death penalty is applied and until we ensure that you know, no innocent person is ever is ever executed. I, I can't support it in its current form. Mm. I don't see why that's a toxic not position only that for, for I a just
0: a second on this because I'm sure it's a bit of a departure mm-hmm. but not only that I would be curious if there's polling on do you support the death penalty. In its current application is how it's being done. And I would wonder if that percentage would be lower versus when you just ask people that kind of blanket question like, well, sure, I can imagine like some circumstances where you're a thousand percent sure they're guilty and they're a horrible criminal. I like, maybe, you know, I would be curious if that would like the view is even a little bit more moderate than those. Poll numbers suggest? I'd be curious about
2: that. Well, and this is the reason I use this. You are correct, number one. I, I should disclose the question here is, are you in favor of the death penalty for a person convicted of murder? Okay. 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 So you could see it being higher in some cases, lower in some cases, but that's the wording of the of the question. And the reason I picked this is because Gallup has asked that question for 80 years. Oh, okay. So it's the best longitudinal study that I can look at. Um, and for me, the most significant thing here is if you look at the 80-year history of support for and against the death penalty in the United States, it, there was a very brief time in the mid to late 1960s this will not surprise you where opposition to the death penalty there's one point in which opposition to the death penalty hits 47% and actually exceeds support 47 42 on this question but by and large it peaks at 37 38 and hovers in the like somewhere between third in the 30s and the 20s going down to the teens as a country for the past 80 years We have generally, by whatever margin, supported the death penalty. Opposition to the death penalty has been an unpopular position. But it hasn't been an Overton window moving proposition, Mm. right? Support for the death penalty has not gone up as – Democrats as a political party have abandoned it. Now, I think a large part of that is because of the work of groups like the Innocence Project, right? To 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 show people, yeah. no, hey, look, like these are cases where we can now look and use DNA evidence and prove like somebody else did it, right? Like that. That is, I think, a very very persuasive
0: argument that. You know, Plus all these Netflix like crime documentaries and serial and stuff like that.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I not clearly did it guys. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we've been, we've been referred to uh, some some additional uh, resources on Syria. I doubt they're going to change my mind, but I am gonna, I'm going to, I'm going to take a look. Um, so that's the death penalty history behind that. But there are a couple other neat things behind the 1994 uh, crime bill that are that are a function of history and so in order to understand those uh we we now go forward in time from 1988 to April of 1994 okay I am getting ready to go to law school okay I'm
0: still, listening to Slayer. I was going to say, um, <laughs> now we're getting into my, the music of my childhood. Yeah, no, that,
2: right. Yeah, the, the music, rock music is uniformly terrible at this point in time. <laughs> this is, this is, this is the worst period uh-huh. in, the, in the history of, of rock music. Sure. Um, no, and, uh, and so early 1994, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, he's, Entering his second year as president, his approval ratings are between 51 and 54%. His disapproval between 38 and high of 44%. But by and large, it's a pretty good spread, right? Yeah. Uh, he's a reasonably popular president. And this crime bill has passed both the House and the Senate, but there is a difference between the two bills. And the difference is the inclusion of a five-paragraph uh, bill that's that's a sub-bill that's part of it, which is called the Racial Justice Act. And the Racial Justice Act says that we are prohibiting anyone from being executed uh, on the basis of race and says an inference that race was the basis of a death sentence is established if valid evidence is presented demonstrating that at the time the death sentence is imposed, race was a statistically significant factor in decisions to seek or impose the sentence of death in the jurisdiction in question. Okay, And then that's a rebuttable presumption. There's a section on how to rebut the presumption. But this was the concession to uh, liberals and the Congressional Black Caucus to support the crime bill was we're going to include this Racial Justice Act. And that was included in the House version of the bill, but not in the Senate version. So when they recessed in April, all that had to be done, and again, Democratic House, Democratic Senate, popular Democratic president, all they had to do was reconcile the two bills uh, because you've got to pass the same right. version of the bill in order for, for it to go to the president for signature. So what happened <laughs> during that recess? Um, what happened during that recess was this is a midterm, right? This was uh, the midterm election of- an incumbent Democratic president and the Republicans mounted their series of political attacks. Uh, is this, that led is this to, enter
0: Newt Gingrich? Is this that
2: enter? This is when Newt Gingrich becomes Speaker of the House in the at the end of the ninety-four elections. But paving the landscape to let Newt Gingrich be elected Speaker of the House of Representatives is the coordinated Republican attack on. Bill Clinton as a president and Democrats who support him, and so during that summer, Clinton's approval ratings plummet. They go from fifty-four percent to thirty-nine percent, and his disapproval wow. stays over fifty percent. Right. So that's the result of this and sort this of full is court press
0: scandal, right? Yeah. How, yeah what were d- they campaigning on exactly to get his numbers to drop that far?
2: well they were they were campaigning on on a number of things um but but the biggest <laughs> at the time there was no overarching issue mm. what it was was a series of little issues designed to break away the democrats from their historical base among what what we now consider to be trump voters right which is uh bill clinton and al gore for example won 8 Southern states in in 1992, Democratic support was reasonable in states like Arkansas, Tennessee, North and South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, uh, Kentucky. Uh, these were not the the kind of you know bright red hellscapes that they are today. And so the the issue that Republicans decided to pick on in the crime bill, you may have heard of this was a program called Midnight Basketball. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of it? I don't think so. So that summer, Republicans looked at this crime bill, and and I should say, the crime bill had $33 billion of spending in it. Okay? We talked about this on SIO. Of that $33 billion, $7 billion was spent on traditional liberal rehabilitation-oriented programs, right? So, for example... Uh, there was a, something called the Ounce of Prevention Council. There was a local crime prevention block grant program. Uh, there were model uh, school grant programs, um, family and community intervention programs, assistance for at-risk youth, uh, money for – to support hiring new local police. And again, we talked about this on SIO, the uh, the funds for the community-oriented police services or COPS um, – you put all that together and it is 7 billion dollars in classic liberal funding uh in this bill the the rest of it the other 26 billion was obviously like you know building new prisons and the kind of stuff that was designed to appeal to republicans of that 7 billion 30 to 50 million dollars there were different differing versions of the bill uh, were for a program called midnight basketball I happen to know a little bit more about Midnight Basketball because Midnight Basketball was invented in Maryland. It was invented in Prince George's County, Maryland in the late 1980s by a man named Van Standifer. And his theory was that what he was going to do was, uh, and Prince George's County is a predominantly African-American, predominantly poor to lower middle-class suburb of Washington, D.C. in Maryland. And the program was between 10 p.m., And 2 a.m. during the summer, facilities would be open for young men between the ages of 17 and 21 to go and play basketball. Uh, And the rule was games couldn't start until 10 o'clock, and two uniformed police officers were present at each game. And the idea was you take kids late at night in these areas, get them off the streets, get them playing basketball. The program was uniformly effective. In fact, George, then president, uh, George HW Bush visited, uh, Maryland and visited Van Standifer and commended, right? You, you, you probably have no recollection of the George W George HW Bush thousand points of light, but the idea was, you know, sort of public private partnerships on community organizations that are doing good. Right. And this was a point of light, right? So, Bipartisan support, super cheap, uh, $7 billion in funding, 30 to $50 million going to this midnight basketball program. Republicans savaged this program, and using I would say racially coded mm. coding is the wrong word, right? Using racially explicit language, right? Oh, you're you, this bill is all about, you know, you're really saying you're going to take gang members, and by letting them play basketball, that's going to, you know, turn them into NBA stars. Are you kidding me? And that concentrated attack on on a tiny, tiny fraction of what was in the bill resulted in midnight basketball being struck from the final omnibus crime bill of 1994 uh, along with the racial justice act, by the way. And so the net result was a weakened president went back and urged, pled with the democratic Congress uh, in particular, the democratic house of representatives uh, to pass the crime bill anyway. And even though, There had been this kind of racial demonizing, and even though the Racial Justice Act portion was gone, and his argument was – and we we talked about this a little bit on SIO – his argument was, on balance, this bill still does a lot of good stuff, right? It has the Violence Against Women Act in it. It has $7 billion for rehabilitation programs. It has – community policing, which was strongly supported by Democrats at the time, and it contained a comprehensive ban on assault weapons, mm. um, which was obviously a key uh, issue in Democratic constituencies. And so the net result was Democrats went to the mat. They fought. It passed once the reconciled version passed the Senate uh, with the, with 62 votes. Uh, then the final version passed uh, 94 to 5. And that uh got the votes of all but uh but two republicans and you know you can look at you can look at sort of the overall strategy of you know being terribly weakened and going back and saying hey you you got to give me something if they kill this bill then you know we're all sort of going to go down together and there's still much to like in this bill that was the pitch at the time uh in in 1994 uh, you know obviously in hindsight the other elements of the bill right Massively increasing prisons, changing the sentencing guidelines, increasing the federalization of uh, state crimes and vastly increasing the death penalty. Oh, and also, as we talked about on SIO, depriving inmates from uh, being eligible to pursue Pell Grants and actually get an education. Uh, You know, I I don't think anybody would want to defend the, the substance of the 94 crime bill is a good thing. But I thought it was worth sort of going through the history of of how we got to to what we got. Uh, and is it is it the result of, you know, nefarious new Democrats who just, uh, you know, work on strategies from within this? Or was it the result of political compromise as the result of, uh, you know, a, a racially motivated campaign that. That torpedoed a president's approval ratings during the uh, the midterms. As we all know, those, that 1994 midterm election was catastrophic for the Democrats. They lost 54 seats in the House. Oh, yeah. They went going from having a 258 seat. Uh, 258 to 176 majority to being in a 230 to 204 minority. Uh, And this again, this is 1994. So this is before uh, Republican gerrymandering really took effect. Mm. It elevated Georgia Republican Newt Gingrich uh, to be Speaker of the House and drastically changed, you know, sort of the the directionality of the country. So, you know, all of that is kind of an important backdrop. And to blame Hillary Clinton for that. (laughs)
1: Well,
0: Well, you'll have to listen to SIO SIO get my opinion. Yeah, if I were to try to maybe do some sort of summarizing here, I think one key ingredient when we talk about blaming Democrats or do taking a both sides are bad on criminal justice stance is even though you might not like political compromise. And obviously that's kind of the definition of compromise is neither side really likes it. I still think it's more appropriate to hold the other side to account that is forcing you into the compromise than it is to take a both sides are the same mentality. Because absent the landslide victory for the Republicans in 94, most of the bad are you saying how much of the bad elements of the bill do you think wouldn't have been in there or or how many more good elements would have Uh, maybe tip the balance in the other way
2: well i wouldn't say absent the 94 that a lot of the bad elements would not have still been in there i think i think they would have been but i think those got in there right like remember you know the the whole first 10 minutes of the segment was designed to show how democrats made a political calculation that that taking a stance on the death penalty is toxic right like so you know you have to unwind a lot of elections to get to that point but like Again, to me, the party that's to blame for support for the death penalty being at 80 percent in this country is the party that energetically ran on the death penalty, (laughs) not the party that ran and lost on opposing the death penalty. Right. Yeah. uh, You know, so I I think that I think it supports your argument, but I don't want to say I don't want to sign on to the idea that, you know. You know, the bill, the the bill was the result of Bill Clinton's triangulation, you know, and again, for our thoughts on that, that and why that's a, Totally a not fair thing to to pin on on Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. You know, listen to the SIO.
0: Okay, so yeah, I, I, sorry, I, I probably was going a little too uh, positive on on the bill. That okay. it sounds like, uh, yeah, still, still the the bad parts would have been in there, but but the calculation was made because Democrats had been been losing election after election after election, and like you're saying, I guess the point I'm trying to make is like they're losing elections because they're not getting the votes with the stance the way that it is. So it's natural to, you almost have to compromise in some way to try to win. And even if you don't like that solution, the reason it's happening is because the other side is beating you like that. So they're the ones that hold to account.
2: Look, I am philosophically and and pragmatically uh, opposed to the death penalty. I've voted for Democrats who are pro capital punishment, not because I agree with that stance, but because I at least understand politically you know, the, the necessity, right? Like, yeah. you know, the, the, there's sort of the like, well, I, I can continue losing to these guys if you want. Yeah. Or I can try and get you some of what you want by compromising on some of the stuff that you don't. And and look like that's a tough thing to do. But but in my view, that's part of what politics is about. So that I mean, that may be unpopular with some of our listeners, but I think I'm prepared to defend having compromise legislation Over having 10 plus years of we don't legislate anymore and power just sort of aggregates in the executive branch and, you know, incoming presidents can undo the protections of the prior president by issuing memoranda and executive orders. Right. Like it would be much better if. Barack Obama had if it had been possible for Obama to go to a Democratic Congress and say, hey, why don't we amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and add sexual orientation? Right. And, you know, and that was tried. Like, I'm not I'm not suggesting that they didn't try. I'm just saying a legislative solution would have been more permanent uh, than the internal executive memoranda solution, which we saw, you know, Trump was able to. Overturned by issuing a contrary
0: member. Well, hopefully that gives people a little more of the backstory on that. It's very interesting. And again, check out SIO for some of the other aspects of it. But uh thanks for taking us through that, Andrew. Hey Andrew, it's time to talk about one of our favorite sponsors, HelloFresh. I love these guys. It is so yeah. fun. To open up a nice fresh box of natural ingredients and uh, make yourself some some dinner.
2: I say this every time we do a HelloFresh ad because it's true. Uh, people who follow me on Facebook and Twitter know I love to cook, uh, but you know, doing a whole meal from scratch is an endeavor. <laughs> yeah, every time I get. The HelloFresh boxes, I do this thing where uh, I bring my 14 year old son, Alex, into the kitchen and we each prepare the meal in a box. We have kind of a small kitchen. (laughs) Uh, We got one stove and we were both able to prepare. We do this kind of like Iron Chef kind of cook off (laughs) style thing. And we both go start to finish in like 35 minutes, you know, out like opening the box, right? Like it was really, really convenient. My son was able to prepare the meal for the three of us by himself with no, not only no help from me, but with me actively trying to sabotage him in order to, uh, to win the competition. And, uh, and I, I love that at the end of the day, you've got something that in the time it would take for delivery to show up or, you know, to go drive and and pick up fast food or something. It's healthy ingredients. It's, it's really tasty stuff. And it's something my
0: teenage- son can do. Now, you do have a teenage genius son, but it is something even I can do, just to throw that in. <laughs> <laughs> they offer you a ton of different options. You've got a classic box, a veggie box, uh, if you're mm. a vegetarian, and a family box. And you can order three, four, or five different meals per week designed for either two or four people and there are new recipes every week. That's one of the best parts, is you're you, yeah. you, left to my own devices. I would make just the same boring pasta or something, it would just be boring every time. But they give you stuff that you're never gonna think to try on your own. That's one of my favorite parts. And all those meals, as you mentioned, are healthy because they have two full time registered dietitians on staff who review each of the meals to ensure it is nutritionally balanced. It's less than $10 a meal, as you mentioned. About 30 minutes to uh, to make dinner. It, it's really fun. What I, what we do, and I can't wait for Lydia to no longer be pregnant, uh, <laughs> is we used to open up a bottle of wine and get that started while cooking. It's a fun experience to cook together and start on your dinner wine a little ahead of dinner. I like that. That's a that's I agree. I to do. That's a that's a great one. <laughs> so definitely go to HelloFresh.com, enter the promo code LAWPOD30. Very important to enter that promo code to get the $30 off deal. And uh, try it out. I guarantee you, you, you will not regret it. It's really fun. Thank you, Dr. Hibbert. I rest my case. You rest your case? What? Oh, no. I thought that was just a figure of speech. Case closed. Andrew, are you excited to be on the same side as Milo Yiannopoulos? I know you You just- I could not be more you're excited. Are a closet excited. Milo fan? No, I'm yep. actually, a, I just, <laughs> I think we both uh, detest Milo Yiannopoulos. I hate him. I think he's horrible. Uh, I think he's a, a terrible human. I think he's a bad influence on uh, our, dis- our, well, he's less of an influence since he was blocked from Twitter and and uh, has been deplatformed, which is a good thing in my mind. But you are, we as we hinted at, Last week, we're going to come down on the same side as Milo. Yeah. So this is a
2: lawsuit that was just filed by the American Civil Liberties Union uh, on behalf of three of their clients uh, who are about as different as you can possibly get. Mm. Right. One is FemHealth USA.
0: uh, I mean, you you could have just said one is Milo Yiannopoulos and the other is a balanced, kind human being. And then it would be. Like as, as well as different. it's even better oh, than okay. that, right? So
2: FemHealth USA is they they do business under the trade name of CareFem, uh, and CaraFem is. Uh, a nonprofit organization that provides abortion care, family planning services, and they sell an FDA-approved—I guess what I would call like the morning-after pill—but is effective up into the first ten weeks of pregnancy, which um, yeah, the is ten weeks you know, after such pill. an obvious. Yeah. yeah, it's it's such an obvious pro-social good. Uh, you know, unless you're in the political party that believes a blastocyst is a human being, like uh, it, you know, it is in my view, the clear, like kind of technological solution to uh almost all of, of the abortion debate. Mm. So Femme Health, right? People for the ethical treatment of animals, mm. and Milo Worldwide LLC, <laughs> the organization that promotes Milo Yiannopoulos, uh horrible human being. And uh Milo Worldwide LLC, this is from the allegations and the complaint, is the publisher of Milo Yanopoulos's new book dangerous and uh and so what all what these four groups so those three groups plus the aclu what they all have in common is uh they all tried to take out ads uh on the washington dc metro uh and they were all denied the opportunity to air those ads and the Washington, D.C. Metro is run by uh, the an organization called WMATA, the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority. That is a governmental body. It is formed by an interstate compact, which is a really, really it's a it's a principle that sort of dates back to the uh, founding of the republic. But, um, you know, you 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 think of the the federal government regulates interstate commerce, states can sort of do, you know, have, have a large degree of sovereignty within their own borders. But what about something where two states border one another and they want to jointly have an enterprise that that connects those, uh, that that operates between the two states, but, you know, doesn't necessarily implicate the federal government? You know, people in Idaho shouldn't care about what happens in Maryland and Virginia, right. you know. Collectively, right, and so in those cases, the two states can propose an interstate compact. Still has to be ratified by Congress, huh. and, and then they can create, you know, sort of a joint authority. So, you know, one of the most common and and publicly well known is the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey that runs the George Washington Bridge that. You know, came into rather public prominence during uh, during Bridgegate, but was, I think, well known, you know, before that. Right. So WMATA is an interstate compact uh, by and between Maryland, Virginia, and the District of Columbia that runs the uh, subway, the Metro. Uh, I used to ride the Metro to work every day when I worked at Covington and Burling. Um, uh, and, and by every day, I mean every day as, as long-time yeah. <laughs> listeners of, of the podcast know yeah, that included Saturdays and Sundays. Yeah. Um, so this, uh, so this, uh, case is, I think in many ways related to the case we discussed with our friends, the slants WMATA has guidelines under which they will accept commercial advertising. And in it, at the end of 2015, they, promulgated their guidelines, and there are four that are relevant to this lawsuit. Guideline number four says medical and health-related messages will be accepted only from government health organizations, or if the substance of the message is currently accepted by the American Medical Association and or the Food and Drug Administration. Guideline number nine says advertisements intended to influence members of the public regarding an issue on which there are varying opinions are prohibited. Guideline number 13 says advertisements that support or oppose an industry position or industry goal without any direct commercial benefit to the advertiser are prohibited. And and, and guideline number 14 says advertisements that are intended to influence public policy are prohibited. Okay. So with those guidelines in mind, what what these four disparate organizations have in common is that they all tried to place ads on the Metro. And they were all rejected under these guidelines, and the ACLU has now aggregated those four together, counting itself, and said that we think that these guidelines violate the First Amendment. Um, what so, do you mean counting itself? Uh,
0: Did they try to advertise? Because the ACLU tried to run an ad. Oh, yes.
2: okay. <laughs> the ACLU's ad was – The text of the First Amendment in both Arabic, English, and Spanish. Oh, wow. I guess in all of Arabic, English, and Spanish. So there were different ones. So one of them had the First Amendment in Arabic. One of them had the First Amendment in English. One of them had the First Amendment in Spanish. uh, And uh, then had the ACLU's logo over the slogan, We the People. And the idea was to send the message that the First Amendment protects Americans who speak languages other than English. uh, And uh, WMATA uh, refused to air that ad. Wow. Okay. Um, and they said, no, this violates uh, the guidelines because it is issue oriented advertising. And, uh, and so you can't air. So amusingly enough, and this is how a lot of uh, outlets are reporting this case. Amusingly enough, there is now a first amendment lawsuit about whether <laughs> you could take an ad that is in fact <laughs> the, the first text amendment. of the first amendment. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that's the ACLU's ad. Carafem's ad was an advertisement that said abortion. Yeah, we do that. Birth control. Yeah, we do that too. Affordable, convenient, 24 seven support. And then had their cannot imagine
0: number. what would be wrong with that ad.
2: Right. And then, and then they had a second ad that they wanted to run that said that featured the image of a white pill, Carafem above it. And below it, it said 10 week after pill. And then the, plug was for abortion up to 10 weeks $450 fast private carefm.org and uh, oh, it actually that was called rejected. it abortion oh, yeah. that's interesting
0: yeah. okay
2: yeah I, I i think so too yeah. uh, but but remember these, this is airing in these ads are being placed in washington dc and the surrounding suburbs so where you know support for abortion rights is is very very high so okay. it, you, it, i could not, i i agree with you that you know, if you were running that ad in Idaho, you probably wouldn't use the A word. Yeah. But, um, but I, th- I think that's the reason for doing that there. And that was rejected as violating guideline number four, which is the medical and health related messages one and guideline number nine, the you can't try and influence members of the public regarding an issue on which there are varying opinions. So that's Cara
0: <laughs> I Yeah. How would any ad not do that in some way? But whatever. I guess we'll get to it.
2: Uh, the official letter Issued by WMATA refusing to run the ad said, because your ad addresses the controversial topic of abortion and promotes a particular abortion product, it is issue oriented. Wow. Yep. Then they say, moreover, to the extent your ad states that CareFM is fast, fast, it makes a medical statement in violation of guideline four, which establishes that these types of statements will only be accepted from government health organizations. And there is, you know, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail. Guideline four, as I read you, d- does not say it can only come from a uh, government health organization. It says, or if it's approved by the AMA and the AMA has in fact approved oh, the use of the drug that's at use there, which is Methapristone, And they have approved it as, quote, safer, faster, and less expensive. So, you know, from a factual perspective, that was wrong. But but obviously that's not that the real reason for rejecting it was it used the A word. Yeah. PETA ran an advertisement that depicted a pig, with the text reading "I'm me, not meat." See the individual go vegan, okay, as part of their go vegan campaign, right? And that was rejected. Uh, they they also had one uh, with a uh, a cow and little baby cow, and the text said, "Not your mom, not your milk, <laughs> Decalf your coffee." So I get I, because a baby cow is a calf, right? So uh, with calf with C A L F. your coffee. Choose almond or soy milk. So those were rejected on guidelines nine and fourteen. Nine, remember, varying opinions. Fourteen, advertisements that are intended to influence public policy are prohibited. Uh, but I think the best one is the Milo ad. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I didn't didn't expect to hear that. Yeah. Milo's ad was just recently pulled. So here's what happened. And this you can you can read these uh, allegations beginning paragraph 50 of the complaint on page 13, which we'll link in the show notes. And I am going to try and include the ad as the show note graphic if we can, just so that everybody else feels the same way and wants to like punch their phone uh-huh. as much as I want to. Yeah. The ad has Milo Yiannopoulos's smarmy, smug, little punchable face, the text of the book, dangerous, pre-order now, and then one of the quotes from the book reviews. And the four quotes were, the most hated man on the internet, the ultimate troll, the Kanye West of journalism- or Internet Supervillain, okay? Those ads are running in New York. So our friend Eli has got to, when he gets on the subway, has got to see Milo's smarmy little face. They ran in Chicago. So our friends Tom and Cecil see them, right? And so they were posted and ran on uh, June 21, from between June 21 and June 26 in DC, 45 different locations in Metro Rail Stations and on... The, the train cars themselves. And then people started complaining about having to ride on a train car and see Milo's face.
0: <laughs> Which I can and, certainly uh, and, am sympathetic to. Yes.
2: Yeah. And so initially, WMATA said, no, the display of this ad is consistent with our policy of remaining content neutral while accepting advertising. Although Metro understands that feelings and perceptions will vary among individuals in the community, we cannot reject advertising because some find it inappropriate or offensive. Uh, but then a few days later, the ads were being, were removed by WMATA for violating guidelines nine and 14. That's interesting. I cannot imagine. I mean, th- there was, there was absolutely no, I, it, it's just Milo's face saying, buy his book. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like it clearly doesn't Which is violate is certainly offensive,
0: but guidelines. Guidelines. not in a, yeah. a way that right. <laughs> violates
2: but the but they guidelines. Don't have... Yeah. The, the WMATA does not have a policy that says we're not going to run offensive ads, right? right. They have a policy that says we're not going to run ads that take a position on an issue. And so, uh, so those are the facts. And then, uh, and again, we did this complaint a little differently because I thought the facts were really, really entertaining, yeah. but, but you see then the, the first amendment allegations here. This is really the distinction between cases where we've said there there isn't – there's no First Amendment uh, implications uh, versus one in which there is. And that is very plainly the guidelines that apply here, and in, in particular the guidelines 9, 13, and 14 are viewpoint-based discrimination, mm. right? Like they say we're not going to – uh, take an ad that weighs in on a particular side of the issue. And by being as vague, you know, this was an issue that, that came up in our discussion on the uh, uh, the 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 Berkeley uh, College Republicans uh, and Coulter case. this is a this is an example of where you're arguing unconstitutional vagueness, right? Where you say if you're attempting to influence members of the public, that is to say, you're running an ad because that's what ads are trying to do. They're trying to influence yeah. you regarding an issue on which there are varying opinions <laughs> so well, any issue right yeah exactly right so that is and there is there is i, I haven't read this you know it's a s- smaller segment but um you know there is obviously evidence on the other side, to the extent that these represent issues, their advertisements to the other sides of those issues. The easiest one to think about that is with respect to PETA, right? Their advertisements for grocery stores that run on, on Metro right? right? That are, that, that promote, like come into Safeway and get a steak for $8 and 99 cents, right? You can run an advertisement for, you know, leather jackets at, uh, you know, Filene's that, that runs on the right. So, all of so to the extent that 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 there is an issue, right, the unconstitutional the, sorry, the unconstitutional vagueness is drawing the line such that you know
0: this only one side represents, is affected.
2: Yeah, yeah, intervening on the it's okay to have
0: well, pro meat and I'm pro meat, uh, but not the anti meat. what side. drives me nuts the most is the abortion one because it's like it's a legal product that they're just advertising like how can it be a viewpoint you know like how could advertising a legal product be a viewpoint i don't get it like or, or in, yeah. in, and, well, and
2: again it's because it is attempting to influence somebody on an issue on which there are differing opinions right like that like the carefem ads are clearly not trying to persuade somebody to be pro choice right like it's not an ad that says you know you should be pro-choice or you should be pro-life. It's an ad that says, "Hey, if you, you know, if you need uh, abortion services or if you need a, you know, morning up to ten week after pill, buy our stuff." So this, in my view, this is an example of clear of 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 where the free speech debate should be taking place. Right when you have an undisputed public forum, right, which is main, maintained and operated by the government right? WMATA is a government agency. It's very, very clear that the first amendment applies and commercial speech is in fact, free speech. We've talked about that before, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and so, you know, yeah, this is, there is absolutely no basis. And it is, it is wrong for Metro to say most people in DC find Milo Yiannopoulos insufferable and want to punch him in his face. And so we're not going to run these ads, right? Like that, 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 that's wrong. That's, that's the violation of free speech yeah. <laughs> that we all should be behind protecting. But when, you know, when a college campus says we don't think Milo's positions are interesting and by the way, we don't want to bring him onto campus so that he can start making fun of members of our student body. That's not a violation of the First Amendment. <laughs> right. And I, I would just like for us to, you know, kind of make it clear where that line is. So
0: Yeah, if a group invites somebody and then gets uh, some feedback like, hey, we don't want this person to talk and decides to make the choice to say, okay, it's not worth it to us to to invite this person anymore, so we're going to disinvite them, that's also not a free speech issue. Correct.
2: And again, you know... It's not hard to transpose those facts onto the billboard, right? Like if Milo Yiannopoulos wanted to run a billboard that instead of just having his smug, punchable face on it, <laughs> had a, a billboard of you know that was like a picture of a student at you know say GW University and was like this student is trans or yeah like y- yeah you know you would you would ban that ad yeah. right and that would you would be you wouldn't be a violation of free speech. It would be that is an unconscionable invasion of that individual's privacy. And of course, we're not going to run that ad. And you know, I, I I don't see other than the industry that is involved in promoting the false equivocation uh, here between, you know, between restricting free speech on the basis of viewpoint versus protecting individuals from harm. I you know, I I, I don't think these are tough cases, but. But apparently others feel differently.
0: Yeah. The thing that drives me the most nuts, and apologies for the the brief personal rant, is is how back when uh, just a few months ago, if that, Dave Rubin tweeted that we should stop donating to the ACLU because they did a profile (laughs) on Linda Sarsour and Sam Harris retweeted it. That we should stop donating to an organization because of one profile they did on their website. This is the reason why that was idiotic, because they are consistently... Uh, defenders of civil rights and free speech and maybe one day they're defending someone you don't like the next day they're defending you so that's why they're I, a good organization
2: I, the acl used to have that slogan uh back back in the uh back in the 90s oh, really? of you know if we don't of, of of and it was something like if we haven't done you know, ACLU, you should donate to us if we haven't done something to offend you. You know, just sit tight. Eventually, we will. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, it was the ACLU that defended the right of the Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois, a predominantly uh, a, t- a town filled with Jewish Holocaust survivors. Right? Like, I mean, it it is just the notion. The, the complete rewriting of history, such that you know uh, uh, the the Christian rights version of their organization had to be called the ACLJ uh, because you know we know the ACLU is the enemy is just uh, it's just crazy, right? They are there to defend. They have historically defended right wing speech with equal fervor as
0: left wing yeah, speech. They are and the actual people who are objectively defending the First Amendment yep. no matter what. Like, they're the only people yep. who consistently do it. They're, they're where all these people claim to be, oh, I'm just free speech fundamentalists, and then when it goes against something they believe, they they don't agree with it. The ACLU actually puts their uh, money where their mouth is. So I think we should put the some US? of our money to the ACLU. I've donated to them before. And I, I, I think agree. I am a card-carrying member of the ACLU. So. Well, there you go. So I guess that, that covers the lawsuit, right? This is a pretty clear. This almost could have been a closed argument, really. Yeah, Yeah, maybe maybe it will. Maybe we go back and and (laughs) maybe the intro was a closed argument. (laughs) Andrew, it's time for our co-favorite day of the week, and that is New Patron Tuesday, and it's so exciting because we are inching ever closer to our live show. I am Oh, I just want to do it. Get us there, guys. There's so much good stuff over on patreon.com slash law. And in a few short uh, minutes here, we should be at our live show goal if people keep uh, pledging. So I'm really excited for that. It's going to be so much fun. It'll be a, a great show. So get us there. And in the meantime, enjoy bonus content. And we can thank our new patrons this week, starting with Daniel Kirsten, Robin Welch, Ate a baby. (laughs) Ate a baby. There we go. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if that's supposed to be at a baby or like you ate a baby, but it's the number eight leading off there. Thank you to Josh J. Green. Please do not publish my name. Uh Uh-oh. Was that? (laughs) I I assume that fulfilled that requirement by saying that. By the Lake 23, Jamie Berg, Mark Voorhees, Blind Larry, and Sif Toad or Skiff Toad, one or the other. Thank you guys for pledging. Yeah, and thank you to
2: Holly Murphy, Jonas Jungberg, <laughs> take that, uh, my my good my good friend Kelly McHugh, thanks Kelly, uh, Alan Boyle, Christopher Lee, Bob, Daniel Kemmer, uh, Justin. And Ruth Bader, the cyborg. Nice. God, I hope so. Uh, yeah. That that if anybody is going to be a time traveling terminating
0: cyborg, I hope it is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. Thank you all so much. She took a slightly different route to influencing the past. If she's a time traveling, <laughs> some time traveling yeah. cyborgs shoot people and do a bunch of that stuff, but. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she took a calmer approach. <laughs> <laughs> the befriending Antonin Scalia approach, which is, you know, it's a weird one, but uh, uh, it, uh, uh, it takes all kinds. Yeah, uh, teach Cyberg their own.
2: Oh, no associate of this firm has ever failed the bar exam.
1: No kidding.
0: And now it's time for my favorite segment of the week. I've just, I can't get enough of this segment for another, again, one or two weeks max. Uh, that is TTGBE. Andrew, let's hear the answer. I hope I didn't blow this one. It seemed easy, but oftentimes that'll be when you tell me I I just was not thinking hard enough about it. So let's find out. (laughs) Yeah, this is the superhero watchdog on the internet writing about a female preacher
2: saying that she conspired with the devil and then like her hair was a bag of hot wires ready to electrocute anyone who dares to come too close. (laughs) Preacher files a defamation lawsuit and demands damages plus an injunction. Uh, Defendant files a motion to dismiss. Will the court likely grant the motion to dismiss? I am not going to bother going through all your eliminations and trying to build up a sense of suspense. You guessed A. A is correct. I hope all of our listeners guessed A. uh, New A. I shouldn't even say guessed. I hope all of our listeners immediately recognized uh, A as correct. We have... Uh, cited before that it is the Supreme Court decision of Gertz versus Welch 418 US 323 expression of an opinion false or not libelous or not is constitutionally protected and may not be the subject of private defamation actions and everything in that is opinion statement other than i suppose conspiring with the devil i yeah. suppose you could
0: say that's a well i think you know, the only but, they tried to make it a little harder by having him claim he had superpowers or whatever so it's like oh that's a fake <laughs> uh, you know that's a false claim but it but that wasn't anything about her so it wouldn't have affected right. it right Yep. Yeah. No, you did
2: a great job I think of parsing through some of the nonsense on it. Yeah, they um, really threw a lot <laughs> at me. They did. They did. But uh but the heart of the question was can you sue somebody because they say mean things about your hair <laughs> and that you, you know, think you're morally superior to everybody else? And the answer is no. So, or don't don't sue people for defamation people.
0: Yeah, it's it's very rare in this country, very rarely uh, yep. do you have a case. But more importantly, forget all that. What is my score now? Your
2: score is now 19 of 36 yes. and you are on a four question winning wow.
0: streak. Wow. That's impossible. So that means I'm going to be a 50% for that a while. Is
2: tied for, no, no, I'm sorry. That is, let me make sure. I think that is your longest streak ever.
0: <laughs> That's not a good sign. But sure. Okay. <laughs> so maybe <we'll> cut, <laughs> no, that, hard. No, we'll cut no. that hard. Keep it. It's good. It's definitely <laughs> as soon as I can get a streak that was as long as my what nine question drought. Maybe I can that would be nice if I could get a, a streak that long in the other direction. But cool. Your 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 longest, your longest losing streak was only six and a row. Oh, okay. Well, Twenty-one
2: well, through twenty six. There you go. I'm close so. to that.
0: So that's awesome. Uh, thanks for giving me a freebie there. That was pretty easy. I, I I'm glad I didn't choke on the open net. And in the meantime, who is today's, uh, this week's lucky winner of T T T B And and there was no luck involved this week. I mean, this was everybody should have hopefully gotten this right, and it was very skill based competition. I might do this week's loser actually,
2: just just a single amount. I might pick the only person who got it wrong. If there's anyone who got it wrong, we'll find out. Yeah,
0: future Andrew, possible, and you might have a lot in common with future with Cyborg Traveler. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but future Andrew has another way of fighting crime, which is to expose whoever got it wrong <laughs> this week. Thomas, this week's quote winner is our friend Jeremiah at Gerbivore
2: on Twitter, J-E-R-B-I-V-O-R-E, who says, D, because it's difficult to throw out libel and defamation suits, merely on a motion to dismiss. That is true. Uh, and this was really good analysis for getting it wrong. But remember that answer D said that a defamation action Cannot be subject to a motion to dismiss there I think our no absolutes guideline would help you out there There's nothing that prevents you from filing a motion to dismiss on a defamation action. It's just usually they're very very fact intensive and they survive, but it's not impossible to knock one out on a motion to dismiss so good guess everyone give at gerbivore j e r b i v o r e a follow on twitter and thanks. And everyone remember he was braver than you in terms of uh, putting his guess out there on the line. So got it wrong, but is our winner this week regardless.
0: All right. Thank you so much for listening to today's show and for listening week in, week out. Uh, we will see you on Friday for yet another quick response, newsworthy timing episode. And uh, thanks, Andrew, for breaking everything down for us. Thank you.
1: Stop This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Thomas. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com law. If you can't support us financially, it'd be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments@gmail.com. at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at www.openargs.com. Be sure to like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OpenArgs. Until next time. This podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media, LLC. All rights reserved.